0: If you have known my family for a while, you know that uh, we have been pet owners in several different ways. So we have a dog uh, who is she, well; she's not a lot like a dog. I think she's the, she's a cross between a pig and a cat. I love her. Like I'm not saying that in a mean way, but like if you met her, you would understand, right? And so she snorts like a pig because she's a pug and she has trouble breathing. She's kind of short and squatty. But her whole disposition is kind of like a cat. She just kind of roams around and she doesn't really play and, and do different things like that. So we've got Sophie. That's Sophie. And then we also recently have gotten two bunny rabbits in our backyard. So we've, the boys and I built a hutch and we've got these bunnies and they survived the winter outside. So we must have done something right. And they're, they're fantastic. Uh, in many ways, they're much more playful than Sophie is. And so sometimes we'll get them in the pen and put Sophie in there and she kind of shrivels in the corner while the bunnies jump all around, you know. But outside of those pets who we currently have, so if you showed up at our house, you would, there's a bit of a zoo going on, uh, we also have hosted, I'll say hosted because they weren't around very long, um, a series of hamsters. Some of you already knew I was going here. You've heard these stories before. Uh, My son, for whatever reason, when he was young, he decided he really wanted a hamster. And so when we moved here to sort of help the transition, we got him a $10, I mean, 10 bucks, right? We got him a hamster. It's a great pet. And so little did I know. Uh, And so the hamsters he had, now he had a series of hamsters. We come to find out, we thought that maybe we were doing something wrong. We come to find out, that the place we were getting them from was selling bad hamsters. Because when we finally changed to a different place, the last hamster we had actually lived for a long time. So we began to think, okay, maybe this isn't just our terrible hamster ownership uh, manifest here. However, what is universal about all those hamsters, whether they were from the first pet shop or the second pet shop, is that they could escape from anything. They could get out of anywhere. Let me tell you a few stories. Uh, The first hamster escaped from the cage somehow. I have no idea how. And it was missing one morning. We couldn't find it. And that's terrifying, right? Especially for Rachel. Because now there's a rodent roaming around the house somewhere. (laughs) You don't know which cabinet you're going to open. And there is the beady eyes of what appears to be a mouse. And yet, is your pet a hamster staring right at you? Uh, We couldn't find it anywhere. And all we knew is that at night, it was coming back and it was eating the carpet around the cage. So it was beginning to have these big holes in the carpet, and it was taking them back there. Incidentally, that's how the first one died. I think it ate too much carpet. Um, I think, I think, I don't know. Turns out it was living in the recesses of the closet and making its way back in at night. So we we trapped it back in the cage somehow. Story number one. Story number two. Jackson, when we went to visit Rachel's parents... was so excited to bring the hamster with, and so we agreed to it. We transported this hamster in the car in its cage, and like an idiot, I packed the cage in the back amongst all the suitcases and luggage and stuff like that. And when we got there, you know what's going to happen already. I went to take out the hamster cage, and the hamster wasn't in there. And it wasn't in any of the luggage. It wasn't anywhere. Here's what I thought, right, based on the fact that we weren't good hamster owners. I thought that this hamster had decided I'm going to make a jump for it. So, so, somewhere on the Schuylkill Expressway, you know, if I can hit the river, maybe I've got a chance. Anything's better than living in this house. I couldn't find it anywhere, and then it began to dawn on me, this thing is in the recesses of my car. Right? This rodent, this hamster is around, and so I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do with this. And so I'm like... I can't let this thing chew up the wires of my car, so I'm going to set a mouse trap for this thing. I don't know what to do. And Jackson, of course, wouldn't have any parts of that. And Rachel's dad was way more kind-hearted than I am, and he actually had a trap to, like, like have a heart trap, to trap, like, squirrels or something. And so we put it out there uh, on our drive home, and by the time we made it home, that hamster was in that trap. Unbelievable, right? They're so crazy in escape. And here's my favorite story. One time we had friends over, and they were uh, Jackson and Tyler, and they had friends over there upstairs, and they were playing with the hamster, and they left it in this this um, this play toy that it had. So it's kind of like a wheel that they can spin in, but it's in a car, like a pretend car, little car, and so it can drive the car around while it's spinning the wheel. And so, rather than putting the hamster back in the cage to come down for dinner, they just left it in the car. And so we're eating dinner and all of a sudden we hear this, (laughs) and that's right, the hamster had driven the car down the steps (laughs) and smashed right into the wall in front of it. And I went out there and I looked and it was stunned and then all of a sudden it started backpedaling, it reared around and it started driving, (laughs) I think they're going to do whatever it could to get out of there. The moral of the story is hamsters are elusive, right? If you're going to own a hamster, you better batten down the hatches. And this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 23, what we're going to find is David on the run from Saul. And thank goodness, David is elusive. Because Saul is trying to kill him with every ounce of his being. And David is avoiding him at every single twist and turn. If you remember, we left David in the cave. And these 400 people had surrounded him, these sort of outcasts of society, and they'd sought redemption in David, and they they named him their captain, their commander, and sort of this kind of fledgling army was developing around David, but they didn't have any resources, and they didn't have any place to sort of make a base. They're in this cave. And in the beginning of chapter 23, one of these men brings word to David that the Philistines, who are the arch enemies of Israel, have invaded the town of Keilah. And rather than just a simple military conquest where they have come in and wiped the town out, they are coming in and stealing from the threshing floors. So in other words, this is what that means. That means you work all day, and then thieves come at night and steal everything you've worked for. And so this was going on time after time in the town of Keilah And so David inquires of God, God, should I go and repel the Philistines on behalf of the citizens of Kala. And God says to him, yes, you should go. And so David asks again, and God assures him, yes, you need to go. And so he goes, and he repels the Philistines from Keilah, and he redeems and rescues the city in this wonderful moment. And then while he's there, he gets word that Saul is going, knows he's in Kala and is going to come for him. He's in this fortified city now, and he's got no way to escape. And so David inquires of God again, God, should I go? And God says to him, yes, you need to get out of here now because these citizens are going to give you up to Saul. So the very people that David had rescued are now betraying him to his enemy. Have you ever felt that in your life? Ever felt betrayed by those you have given yourself to? Ever felt that someone, when it wasn't easy, decided to turn their back on you because it was easier to do that than to stick with you? Have you felt that? It's not a new emotion. What's interesting to me kind of in this story is that David has has access to God. He is one step ahead. He's elusive to Saul. He's one step ahead of Saul at every turn. Saul is working strictly on human intelligence. Reports from the field and his own intellect to go after David. But David is not dependent strictly on human intellect. He is dependent upon God himself. And you see which one rules the day. It's interesting because when Saul has all the priests in Nob slaughtered, you remember that from last week, one priest escapes and his name is Abiathar and he runs and finds David. And through Abiathar the priest and his ephod, David is able to have access to God. And so he continually goes to God to seek direction. Now this is striking because this is exactly why the kingdom has been taken from Saul, if you remember. Because Saul acts on human intelligence rather than seeking the wisdom of God. Friends, you will always be tempted to act on your human intelligence, on the reports of those around you, on your own intellect and wit. Can I urge you to seek the face of God? to find divine wisdom, whether it's in an important decision or a difficult circumstance. Here's what God says to you. Not only is He the fountain and and reservoir of all wisdom, but this is what He says, that He gives freely to anyone who asks. And we see it in the story of David. David is elusive because he's dependent upon God and not himself. So David evades Saul, and this must have been really frustrating to Saul. And David goes down into the territory of Judah. He's in this town called Ziph. And he's probably figuring this is good territory for him because, after all, David is from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is in Judah. So this is his tribe. These are his people. But as soon as he gets there, some of the people from Ziph go to Saul and say, hey, guess who just moved into the neighborhood? that guy David that you're looking for. And so Saul comes after David and Ziph, and David is able to escape once again. Have you ever had your own people turn their back on you? Have you ever had your own kind, your friends, your family, your tribe take the easy way out instead of standing with you? Have you felt that? It's not a new emotion. So David finds his way to this place called Maon, and there's this interesting storyline. Saul is now cornering him. They're on either sides of this mountain. And the Hebrew language, we can't kind of pick it up in the English, but it basically is kind of like Saul is tightening the noose on David. He is surrounding him, and there is nowhere to go. And as Saul is ready to pounce on David... One of Saul's messengers comes to him and tells him, The Philistines have attacked us in another place. And so Saul has to withdraw in order to deal with the Philistines, and David is able to escape. This is the providential nature of our God, who would use even an attack of our enemy to provide our own salvation. We've said before, we like to be the hero of the story. We like to read these stories about David, and our first attempt is to say, oh, how does this relate to me? How am I like David? I've been betrayed. I've been disowned. I've been in these difficult circumstances. Good, I can turn to God. That's all true and good, but we've said before, and we need to focus once more, that you are not David, and neither am I. David is very much a picture of Jesus himself. Now listen to the story again. David was betrayed by those he came to save. Have you heard that somewhere else? David was disowned by his own people. Have you heard that somewhere else? And God used an attack of the enemy to bring salvation. Friends, this is Jesus, who was was betrayed by the very people he came to save. If you want to say that in a large way, that's Israel and all the people, Jesus came. They just said, no thank you. You're not who we expected you to be. We're not interested. Or if you want to be very specific and very intentional and very emotional, think of Judas, who was in the inner tribe and the inner clan, and yet was willing to give up Jesus for personal expediency. He was disowned by his own people. Again, if you want to think in the big picture, think Israel again and the people that he came to. But if you want to think in the small picture, think Peter, who in that very moment when he could have stood with Jesus, said, no, I'm not with him, to save his own skin. And whereas in David's story, God used an attack of the enemy, the Philistines, to provide salvation to David in the story of Jesus, catch this, God uses an attack of the enemy, Satan, on Jesus Himself at the cross to provide salvation to the whole world. This is how the kingdom comes. This is how the kingdom of David comes, and then this is how the greater kingdom of Jesus comes to this place. That Jesus would receive the attack that was due you so that you could experience the salvation that was due Him? Do you taste that? So what does that mean for us? Where do we fit into 1 Samuel chapter 23? Well, once again, I would say you're not David, but you're in this story. And I think what, the, what we're intended to do here, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see this morning, is once more, as it has always been through this story, is we have a choice as to which kingdom we intend to serve. Which kingdom do you intend to serve? See, you can be like the Kelites and the Ziphites, and when the going gets tough, you can exit stage left, or you can give up David. The Kelites and the Ziphites were willing to betray or turn their back on David. Why? Probably to assuage their fears, because if... Saul comes after him, we might be caught in the crosshairs. Or if not that, then it was at least to buy some temporary comfort. So think about it for a moment. The Kielahites and the Ziphites probably are analyzing the situation. Okay, here we've got David and 400 people who don't look like soldiers. This is the worst army we've ever seen. Here are people who just came here. And they're saying, okay, we've got these people, or we've got the, the royal army of Saul who is coming after this guy. Which side are we going to pick? What does logic tell you in the moment, right? Logic says things like, well, they're only after David anyway, they're not after me. If I just step to the side and let them have them, so be it. It's this human wisdom, isn't it? It's human intelligence. It's not divine wisdom. It is so easy in the moment to rationalize our willingness to step away from the side of Jesus to appease the kingdom of this world. Do you hear that? Think about your life. Think about Peter for a moment. In the hours after Jesus was arrested, as he was publicly being tried and beaten, And then as Peter is recognized as a follower of Jesus and is called on the carpet for his allegiance to Jesus, what does Peter say? I don't know him. Even though hours before, he had pleaded with Jesus to believe him that he would never, ever deny his Lord. It is so easy in the moment to stand aside and give up Jesus. Do you see it? See, for many of us, when we think of betraying Jesus or giving up Jesus, we think of those, those moments that are sort of movie-like moments where like, what would I do if someone held a gun to my head and said, you either deny Jesus or you're dead. Right? That's what we think about. Like, What would I do in that moment? That's a serious reality for many people, unfortunately. And we try to rationalize in our mind what would we do in that moment. But what I want to tell you is that betraying Jesus is way more subtle than those huge moments. See, every single time we give into the temptation to build our own kingdom, every single time we give into the temptation to follow the kingdom of this world, what we're really doing is betraying Jesus. It's the old adage that you, whenever you say yes to something, you are always saying no to something else. And when we say yes to ourselves in this world, almost always we're saying no to Jesus. Do you see it? It is so easy in the moment to betray Jesus. But maybe we're not Kielites or Ziphites. Maybe we're like the 400 who are traveling with David. We've called him commander and captain. And we are totally dependent upon David for preservation. See, these guys don't get mentioned in this story at all. Read it later on today. They're not mentioned. It's all about David eluding. But they're there, right? And so they are totally dependent upon David's survival. Do you think if David is captured that Saul's going to just tell them to go home? Of course not. So they are absolutely and wholly dependent upon David. And not just for their preservation, but also for their access to God. Because David is seeking God through Abiathar. And what do we hear of them? We don't hear any stories of desertion or giving up their commander. This is the call of the kingdom. To be totally dependent on Jesus. To be wholly given to him. Now, that seems so abstract, doesn't it? What does it even mean to be dependent upon Jesus? I hear you people up front at church always talking about that stuff. And what I want to do is try to help us understand that in a very different way than ever before. I think sometimes when we hear phrases like that, what we think it means is that I've got to go sell everything I own and then depend upon Jesus for everything. And so, when I get up in the morning, I have to ask Jesus, "What should I even eat for breakfast?" Like, you know, we're just dependent upon Jesus for every single thing. But it's not that way, right? We're not talking about minutia in that way. What we are talking about is a holistic redefinition of your existence. Now, catch this: What would it mean for you to depend upon Jesus like this? See, I think this is what Paul is after when he says to the romans that the only responsible res- only responsible response can i say that the only effective the only right response to the gospel to what jesus has done for you is to give him your life and then we do that by the renewing of our minds the changing of our perspective on things so what does it mean to be dependent upon Jesus, let me suggest four things. There are more than this, but these are just four things to get you thinking. The first is being dependent upon Jesus, I think, means redefining success. It means redefining success. For most of us, we define success by our personal achievement in this life, don't we? We define success by the friends that we have. We define success by the grades that we achieve. We define success by what we get on our exams this coming week. We define success by our promotions at work. We define success by all of these things. Or, in a more sort of meta-narrative way, as Americans or people who are living in this country, we define success by what has been given to us as the American dream. You you have a house, you have a family, you have kids, you have sort of this American dream thing going for you. But what if none of that was actually success? Because all of that is dependent upon you. What if success was actually seeing the kingdom of God move forward? What if success was actually seeing the name of Jesus spoken in new places? Prayed to in new homes, sung to in new sections of the town. That is success. Success means that 2,700 children are sponsored, not that my life is comfortable here. Do you see it? Success means that justice is promoted, not that I got a promotion. Do you understand? The second thing, we need to redefine identity in a kingdom way. See, for most of us, identity, as we define it, is basically what we've been able to achieve and what status we have in this life. And of What is our place? What is our pecking order? Where are we at? That's our identity. If you're a doctor, then you are probably most known as a doctor. If you're a teacher, then you're probably most defined as a teacher. If you're a musician, you're probably most defined as a musician. You kind of get it. Our identity is our status, our position, our stature. But what if that has nothing to do with our identity? Because all of that is dependent upon you. What if to be dependent upon Jesus meant that your identity actually came from Him and not you? What if your identity was the fact that you are dynamically and eternally connected to the rightful king and his kingdom. See, we have identity because we live here as Americans or as Lehi students. We have, have these identities because we are marked by where we're from. But what if we were marked by Jesus? What if our identity was actually marked? By our connection to Him. See, this is what the word Christian is supposed to mean. In our world, the word Christian has been abused and it has all kinds of negative stereotypes that go with it. The word Christian is thrown out there and blah, right? Religion, laws, legalism, hate, so forth and so on. But what the word Christian at its core really means is to be a little Christ, And so what it means is that you are marked by Jesus. You are like the one from whom you come. What if dependence upon Jesus, if it means redefining wealth? Like for us, in our world, wealth is about accumulation of stuff and prosperity. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not speaking against that, right? Right? For many people, God has blessed them in that way. So long as we are using them in the right way, so be it. But that's not wealth. That's stuff. Okay? That's resources. It's not wealth. We need to redefine wealth in a kingdom way. Because that wealth is dependent on you. The wealth that you have is your kingdom inheritance from Jesus. And you might say, well, that's theological terms. What does that even mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. The kingdom inheritance means that because of Jesus, you have access to God. Hebrews chapter 4. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you can boldly go directly to the feet of God the Father himself. There is no barrier, no separation. That is wealth. Kingdom inheritance means you have the Holy Spirit. A down payment on the full kingdom of God that is to come the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin, the Holy Spirit that moves in you and leads you in righteousness, the Holy Spirit that teaches you about Jesus, the Holy Spirit that gives you wisdom, that is a go-between, an advocate, a caregiver, a comforter for you, that is wealth. Kingdom inheritance means that you have victory over sin and death, now and in the future. That is wealth. Do you see? This is what it means to be dependent upon Jesus. It's not just as simple as saying, well, God, you got to give me every single thing every throughout the day. Of course, there's that reality in that. But we're talking about a holistic way of living and engaging with the world around us. What if, in the big terms of things, we need to redefine life itself? Because for most of us, we would define life simply as survival. Continuing to breathe earthly breaths, making it through another day, making it through another week, making it to the end of our time here. But that is dependent on you and those around you. What if life was actually about a depth of existence, about understanding the reason for your existence and living fully into it, having a kingdom purpose, That you are here not simply to survive, but to thrive as ambassadors of the kingdom. God has given you the great privilege of being a taste test for this world of renewal that he promises in the fullness of time. That is what it means to be dependent upon Jesus. You get a taste of what we're talking about this morning. And so it's only through Jesus that we become elusive from our enemy. David is elusive from Saul, his enemy. Jesus is elusive from Satan. Even in that moment when Satan rains down his attack on Jesus on the cross, certainly in the back of Satan's mind is, wow, I may have won this war, but little does he know that Jesus would be vindicated, that the resurrection would be God's stamp of vindication on this sacrifice. And that through his attack, actually, the kingdom would be wide open to the whole world. And so it's only in your connection to Jesus that you become elusive to the enemy. What is the enemy's number one way of attacking you? It's that word that starts with a T, temptation. You know all about it. You feel it nearly every single day, don't you? It is Our enemy's number one way of coming at us. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, there is this super interesting story where uh, Saul is back from fighting the Philistines and David has gone to En Gedi, which is this beautifully lush place. Now he can kind of provide for himself. And he's hiding out in a cave with all of his men. And Saul and his armies are in the garden around them. And Saul comes into the very cave that David and all his men are hiding. But he comes in by himself. Read the text carefully. What he intends to do in there is a private moment. We'll put it that way. He's using the facilities in in an Old Testament kind of way and probably kicking back and taking a rest. And David sneaks up on Saul and somehow cuts the corner of his robe off. And immediately after he cuts the corner of his robe off, he feels intensely guilty about what he's done. Because who was he to attack the anointed king of Israel that God had put there? And David's men are saying to him, now's the time, let's get him, let's kill him, and you can ascend to the kingdom, the rightful throne that is yours. And David has to rebel them, he has to thwart them. The Hebrew is much stronger than your English. It basically says that he has to yell at them forcefully, not to attack Saul. And Saul leaves, and later David emerges from the cave and holds up the corner of his robe and says to Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Why are you coming after me when I've done nothing to you? And Saul has a moment of clarity which won't last long and says, I'm sorry for what I've done. Saul actually says to David, you are going to be king one day. Would you promise to me that you will take care of my descendants? And Saul retreats. Now, if you were like me, you read the story and you think, what is wrong with David? Here's his chance. God has clearly, right, you've had these moments, haven't you? God has clearly delivered him into my hands. We've had these moments where our plans begin to sort of sync up with God's, and we love that, and we jump all over that, rather than taking a moment to see what God's really doing. And we go after it. You see, David, he's already got his foot into it. He's got the corner of the garment. And then he realizes what he's doing. That he's taking things into his own hands rather than trusting God to do what God intends to do. Have you ever done this? Have you ever seized a moment when it really wasn't a moment? Have you ever thanked God for what He's given when it really wasn't something He's given? Have you gone hard charging at it and realized that's more about you seizing what you want than God giving you what He intends to give you? See, what was happening in that cave and David came to realize it was temptation. He had a chance to do an end around his problem. Think about the adrenaline that must have been rushing through David's body in that moment. He has been on the run for a long time, living off the land, dependent upon these people who he's just getting to know and doesn't know their ability, running from town to town in every single place he's being given up by his people. And now he can kill the king and ascend to the throne and be done with all of this? Imagine it. And yet he has that moment of check In his spirit, where he realizes, no, this is more about me than it is about God. And he pulls back, and he thwarts his men's attack. So there was a shortcut for David, and he didn't take it. And we have to begin to ask ourselves, why? And then we think about Jesus. David mirrors. And we remember when he was cornered in the wilderness by the enemy. And we remember how the enemy came at him hard in temptation. And that the temptation all led to this climactic moment where, the, where Satan says to Jesus, here are the kingdoms of the world, which were rightfully Satan's because he was the king of them. If you bow down to me right now, You can have all of these. We don't pause to feel the weight of what Jesus must have been processing in His human mind at that moment. This one act of betrayal could mean no cross. Could mean no separation. Could mean no embarrassment. Could mean no rejection. Could mean no people turning their back on me. No bloodshed, and I get the thing that I'm here to come after but Jesus turned down the shortcut too and as we are become accustomed to hearing he quotes scripture right this is how we we respond to temptation he quotes scripture and he says the scripture tells me Satan that I'm to worship God only so be gone from me can I suggest to you something new this morning Jesus wasn't just quoting Scripture. Have you tried that in temptation? We'll talk about this in just a minute. I'm getting the cart before the horse. It's really quite ineffective, if we're being honest. Like, we get into temptation, and we're just trying to quote Scripture, and we're saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, saying it, but the temptation is still there, still there, still there, still there, and maybe it goes away because we sort of outlast it, or maybe it doesn't. Jesus wasn't just quoting Scripture. He was doing that, but he was doing it for a reason. He was doing it because... He loved the one who wrote the Scripture. And that's why the Scripture that he quoted was what? Worship God only, not anyone else. Do you see this? That for David and for Jesus, the way to move away from temptation and into obedience was to love God Himself. And this is what they model for us. So when temptation comes your way, and it will, when the enemy is in your face and you're remembering, oh, we talked about eluding the enemy a few weeks back. Can I just remind you of two things? If you remember only two things from this whole time this morning, these are it. Okay? These are, you will be tempted. The enemy will be in your face. If you're hanging with Jesus the enemy is going to be around you. Right? That's the moral of the story. If you are hanging with Jesus, the enemy is going to be with you. And his number one modus operandi is temptation. He can get you off course so quick. Two things you need to remember. Here is how you avoid or defeat temptation. It is really this simple. You avoid temptation by loving God. That's it. There is not a three-step process there's not barriers you can create that will avoid temptation. Satan is way smarter than you. If you block him one way, he'll come through the other side. Right? You found this other way. You deal with your pornography problem, but you realize that it wasn't pornography. That was just a manifestation. It's really pride and rage, and so it flares up in another way, and Satan comes there for temptation. You cannot barricade yourself from Satan. Okay? You are going to find him in the same cave that you are hiding in. And the only way to defeat him is to love God. Do not quote scripture at Satan as a way to get out. It won't work. I've tried it. I know a lot of Bible verses. I had to memorize them for all kinds of things in my life, and they've stuck. And if you are just shooting Bible verses to try to be done with Satan, it isn't going to work it might work for a time, it might work for a season, is not a universal solution. Why? Because whether or not you can spit out a Bible verse doesn't necessitate whether or not you will be obedient to what it says. You got it? The only way that you will be obedient to what it says is if you love the one who said it. Because love breeds obedience. Obedience doesn't breed love. We've taught that backwards in the church for millennia. It's all about obedience. If you obey, obey, obey. If you get everything in order, get everything in order, get everything in order, then you'll love God. It doesn't work. Legalism is, is a, a minefield. However, if you are radically cultivating in your life a love for God, what you will find naturally, almost without even effort, is that obedience follows right behind it. And so if you are loving God, when temptation comes, it will be that much easier to stand aside. And to say, God's will, not mine. He's my king, not me. Think about it this way. I love Seinfeld. If you know me for any amount of time, if you've been here for at least a month, you've heard me quote it in a sermon or some other. I can quote anything to Seinfeld. In fact, any situation, we could do this one time for fun. You could throw out a hypothetical situation. I would reference it in Seinfeld. I know them. Back and forth, I know every. I I could quote it like crazy. Shakespeare, on the other hand, I don't know very well. I've studied it in college and in high school, and there are certain parts that I can remember, but I can't quote it very well, and it doesn't work. See the difference between loving the author and knowing the text. You see it? But there is a second way to defeat temptation because we are not good at always loving God. We fail at that sometimes. A lot of times. The second way is this. It's the gospel. In other words, Jesus has already defeated him for you. So even when you fail, And even when you give in to temptation, and then you start beating yourself up, right? There was a big fight last night, but for most of us, the fight is more ourself against ourselves. We are pounding ourselves time and time again for our disobedience and our failure. We haven't understood the gospel. The gospel says this. Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to this. This is remarkable. We misunderstand this sometimes. Sometimes. Famous verses, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. See, David needed Abiathar to have access to God. Jesus doesn't need anyone. He's got direct access to God. And therefore, if you've got Jesus, you've got direct access to God. No in-between. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just as we are. Do you hear that? Jesus knows. Because He has defeated temptation for you. Yet He did not sin. Now listen to this. We misunderstand this verse. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We almost always take that verse to mean I can go ask God for anything I want because Jesus is my in-between. I've got full access to God. That's true, but that's not what that's saying. You hear what it's saying? Because of what Jesus has done, because he was perfect in the face of temptation, not that you can just go to God and be in front of him, but that you can go to God and receive two words. Did you hear them? Grace and mercy. Mercy. In other words, this verse means that you will fail in the face of temptation, but because of what Jesus has done, you can go directly to the Father and be renewed of it. It can be cast away from you, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. That's the Gospel. Do you see it? Temptation is crushed. It's defeated. If you love God, you will resist it. And when you fail to love God and you can't resist it, Jesus has already paid for it. And in that moment, when you taste that, when you actually go to the feet of the Father and you sit and you receive grace and mercy rather than just some cursory confession of sin that means nothing, when you taste the weight of your failure and your rebellion against God and then you feel the grace of Jesus' work immersing over you, what happens? It begins to cultivate love for God. And then what happens? You begin to be able to withstand temptation because you love God. And if you mess up again, you taste the Gospel again, and it increases your love for God. And then you're stronger to resist temptation. Do you see the cycle of redemption that is yours in the kingdom? Friends, you might feel like you are in a cave and the enemy is in your face. The truth this morning is that you are elusive to the enemy because of Jesus. And you can avoid every temptation through cultivating a love for God and through, in the face of the enemy's accusation that you screwed up again, reminding him of a resurrection preceded by a crucifixion that says your mess up is already covered. Luther said this to his church. The devil is always going to remind you of your sin. And you say right back to him, I know about my sin. What of it? I have a Redeemer who has already paid the price. This is the Gospel. Can I pray with you?